Hey there, Matt here. Before we get started, just want to let you know that we will be sprinkling some book knowledge into our podcast. Don't worry, they will not spoil any aspect of the story. They're just more supplementary. However, if you're a person who absolutely hates book reader knowledge in your TV talk, then this podcast probably isn't for you. Also, we're sorry. Anyway, here's the podcast. Hope you enjoy. Dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. Did you not sorry. read the doc, people? I read oh, no, it. I, I read it. I was just on doc. mute. I'm sorry. And the HBO Game of Thrones franchises. It's at the bottom of the doc, Matt. You need to put it at the top. Yeah, oh, you need to read I the whole doc. In- You're listening to Before the Dragon. Don't tell me what to do. Do, 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 do. Welcome back to Before the Dragon. My name is Matt. As usual, I've got a ton of people who are way smarter than I am, and I like it that way. I bet you do too. Thanks for joining us. Let's get to talking about this episode right away. Season one, episode one of House of the Dragon, written by the showrunner Ryan Condal, with a little bit of help from George, and also directed by Michael Shaposnik. Heirs of the dragon i believe is the title of the episode that finally came out i at the time that i recorded my instant reaction i didn't have a title yet everybody else did seem to i guess either i was just too lazy or maybe i just didn't look hard enough or incapable of using the internet as good as most people are it doesn't matter we're going to rate this episode right now i've already given my rating as you heard in my initial reaction of a nine out of ten uh the only two things that were kind of drawbacks for me was i felt like that If you were a brand new novice viewer into this, you might have gotten a little lost on a couple of things as opposed to somebody who is very familiar with the source material. And I also thought, and everybody's going to hate me for this, but I also thought I saw some lines around the dragons that really bothered me and took me out of the world. Uh, but I've explained all that in my initial reaction. Continue to send your hate mail to at the letter B, the number four of the dragon pod on Twitter and you can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the website post, mattsaudioblog.com, or comments on our YouTube. A YouTube, look, we've got people on the YouTube. We're all here together to talk about House of the Dragon. And just go to YouTube and do a search because I don't have enough subscribers in order to get a, a, a fancy little handle name yet. So just uh, search for the word before the dragon podcast on Twitter. That's enough about me. That's enough about the podcast. Let's talk to our sirens of a song of ice and fire, our Titans of a song of ice and fire. Anybody who's coming in here in order to give us their opinions about this particular episode. I want to start way off in the West, way off there in the West. I'm going to go to Kelly, the siren of a song of ice and fire from the West. Kelly, first of all, welcome back. Second of all, how did you rate this episode on a scale of one to 10? Matt, we're back. It's happened. I can't uh, contain myself. I was so excited to see it again. Um, Nope, not happening. Don't want to, not gonna. (laughs) It was so good. Um, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. I was uh, blown away. It was was a good episode for even like the main series. So like it being a new thing and everything there being new, I was like, this is, I couldn't have been happier with how the, they unfolded the story, the pacing, all of the acting, the scenery, there were enough callbacks to keep everybody grounded. There was enough new stuff slash old stuff that made it like, uh, feel like a new time. Yeah. I was down for all of it. And plus, uh, dragons and dragon skulls and fighting and 
of course, I mean, we're in Game of Thrones. There was tragedy, but it was uh, it was great. And the House of the Dragon is really like establishing itself as a its own thing. And I liked it uh, as far as an intro goes. Um, we'll see where they take some of these stories going forward. But as far as an intro, amazing. 10 out of 10. We also have with us the siren of A Song of Ice and Fire from the East. Returning once again, it is Susan. Susan, welcome. And what was your rating for this particular episode of House of the Dragon? Hi, Matt. Um, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say that because I loved the episode. I think it was great, but I want to give them room to grow. And I'm going to say that I didn't think it was perfect. So, yeah, that's the reason I picked Nate. Was there any particular reason that stuck out that didn't make it perfect? Um, I am not so sure that I'm crazy about the whole uh, relating the prophecy part, the mm. the White Walker part. Uh, it just uh, It's not that I necessarily don't care for the idea. I'm just not sure about the way it was delivered and the idea that this is just being something passed down from the king to the heir and nobody else should know about it so I, I just have some issues with some of that that's probably the primary problem i had all right excellent how about you holly the siren of a song of ice and fire from the south welcome back once again i promise you i will have my chicken next week for my punishment uh for episode two it's it's inevitable uh i've found a gas station that i can eat chicken with uh, I found a, a grocery store that I can get a full a full roasted chicken with and, and really gross people out eating that. And I did find a, a couple of little chicken establishments that I could also part to. Thinking about chicken soup also. Is that acceptable? Why not? There's chicken and chicken soup. So all right. <laughs> so we'll add a bowl of chicken soup to that as well. But in the meantime, Holly Siren of the Song of Ice and Fire from the South. How did you rate this first episode of House of the Dragon on a scale of one to ten? Okay, well, to start, I will say I do share uh, in Kelly's enthusiasm. I am very, very excited to have some Thrones back in our lives. And oh, man, I've just had like the best two days. It's Monday. Uh, yesterday was the best day. And today is like another really great day. And it's just because I have this back in my life to think about. And I feel alive again. I really do. I don't know this. It's been awful since Thrones ended. And um, it's and I feel like things are like getting back to normal now. Like this, there just has to be thrones in my life. Um, I really enjoyed this episode. I did not rate it as high as either of you guys. I think I was, I, th I, I think I'm going to call it an eight. Still a pretty strong score. I just think it's, you know, a lot of setup, a lot of um, exposition. I'm very excited about, I was very happy and excited about all of it. I really don't have complaints about it, but there's so much now that we've, set up everything we have room to grow with the story and the action and hope so um i'm i'm just going to start this episode of one with a score of eight out of ten overall but i am 15 out of 10 happy that we have this show now time to bring in another one of our a song of ice and fire folk and he is a titan from a song of ice and fire from the north we welcome back John. John, it's great to have you back. And I want your rating for this episode on a scale of one to 10. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. And I will give this one a 7.87. 
That's pretty specific. Why so? <laughs> because everyone normally just gives flat halves or solid numbers. So I'm trying to be unique. Um, but I will, I docked this several points for CGI and uh, composite shots. Um, very poor CGI, um, very plasticky looking, constant fog in the background and matte, matte painting or animated matte painting, whatever you want to call it. I thought it looked terrible and cheap and it feels like it's done on a green screen set. However, the costumes were amazing and the acting was great, except Corliss. Everyone loves Corliss, but I didn't think he was all that special. I thought he was okay. That's interesting. I, uh, I, I didn't feel like he had enough in the episode to, to, for me to make a real judgment one way or the other. However, uh, I did like what he had to say yeah. about the stepstones. I, I think story-wise, he was very important here. Yes. Um, but I, 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 I okay. Uh, is there anything in particular about that that you just didn't like? No, it was just, I guess, the performance. It's, it's a certain kind of aesthetic that the original series kind of had. And even those small parts, small amounts of words, people had a certain kind of gravitas. And he felt more of like, I don't know, he didn't feel of the era. He didn't feel like steeped in the world where other actors and characters kind of, it felt like very lived in, like even Matt Smith, like I've, he's like the most known face and probably Reese Ifans, probably also one of the most known faces. Those guys felt like those were, that was Damon Targaryen and that was Otto Hightower, where Corliss, I, I don't know the actor, but at the same time, he felt slightly out of place. But the story elements, I agree. But the, again, I'm probably really picking some nits here, but I mean, the CGI to me, that dragon I thought was borderline terrible. I, I was getting the old Danny flying through the sky when, if everybody remembers that episode, that's what I was getting. Yeah. You have no idea how relieved I am that someone agrees with me because I've had nothing but scouring faces look at me ever since I mentioned that I didn't like the way the dragons look. I swear that I saw them outlined. It was like they weren't yeah. matted correctly or something like that, mm -hmm. but not, not the all lighting. the time. It's all lighting. Yeah. Like some scenes it would be good. And then some scenes it would be off. For and me, it was only... specific camera movements, John. For right. me, it was if they yeah, were moving through the camera or away from the camera, it really stood out. Right. Yeah. It's all the composite shots, though. Like every time they did like kind of a sweeping like pan up, especially when they were following Rhaenyra as she's walking with Allison up the tower and like, oh, they're on set, they're on set, they're on set. And then it pans up and then we're all in digital world. And it's like it's so drastic. And also the scene where they're going up to King's Landing and they had the uh, like parapets and they're going through the gate. You look at the background. That is clearly not a castle. That is clearly a digital map painting. It is like 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 you said it's like something with the matting is just like the lighting the coloring they look like two completely different locations composited together gotcha. so so all right but let me just try and convince you can you take it out one more decimal point and add a nine to it so it's a little closer uh sure. to being a, a, a hundred seven point seven point nine okay i got you <laughs> <laughs> all right here i had a corliss valerian to the wheel of topics <laughs> And that's all of our panelists giving their first rating for this particular episode. The first rating of the season from the entire panel regarding House of the Dragon. Nine more of them to come. But before we get into talking any further about this particular episode, there's one subject that's a little bit close to my heart and probably the one thing that I won't be the dumbest person in the room talking about. 
that is the music of House of the Dragon and our old familiar composer Ramin Javadi has returned to score a magnificent score for this first episode. Here are my thoughts on that. By the way, this one's kind of long. If you're not into music stuff, uh, you don't want to wade through all of this. Skip ahead about 16 minutes and then we'll be back to spin the wheel of topics. Okay, so every week on Thursdays, pretty close to the beginning of every podcast, I'm going to give you a little bit of a music commentary because I spent a lot of time as a musician in my life. And this is one thing that I'm probably much more qualified than anybody else on this podcast to talk about. I won't say all the time, you know, people's feelings are subjective about everything. So my opinion isn't gold, but nonetheless, I loved the music in this episode. Why would you not? Uh, It's Ramin, Ramin doing Ramin things. And uh, the four things that I usually like to focus on are melodic shape, which is how high or low the notes go. I also like to focus on the timbres, the instruments that are used. Although in Game of Thrones, it typically is more of a string kind of thing, or sometimes, of course, uh, as was the case with the end of this episode, the piano uh, has been coming in ever since the end of season six of Game of Thrones. Ramin started using piano a lot, which I'm not that great with, but I can accept. And uh, as far as that theme goes, that's at the end that has the piano in it. I've already done a podcast on that. It was my initial reaction to hearing the actual recording of it because I was listening to the actual recording of it and commenting as I went I can't put that on YouTube. So if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm sorry, it's not here. But in the audio podcast, which you can get anywhere you get your normal audio podcast, you can download it. It'll be a couple of episodes back. It'll be right before my initial reaction to this episode. And you can hear Prince That Was Promised, me kind of breaking that down a little bit, mostly just reacting to it. But you can hear my thoughts about that there. So that's one piece of music that we've already covered basically on this podcast is the stuff that was at the end. And a lot of the themes this time around also focused on having little incorporations or variations of themes that we knew from the Game of Thrones television series, which makes sense. We're in the same universe. Uh, So that makes sense. But the timbres are the second thing. The third thing is rhythm. How does the beats get subdivided and what does that do to your heart rate and that kind of thing the fourth and final thing probably the most important thing for an emotional context is the harmony and how that's implied so i'm going to apply a little bit of all of that as we talk about this music from this particular episode first of all right off the bat from the great council that we saw in heron hall as we start to hear the narration and we see the vote tally being brought up to King Jaehaerys. Uh, you're getting a version of the dragon connection theme. That's what I call it. Uh, a lot of people have associated this just with Danny. It's not. It's been used now 
in a whole different time period. According to this show, 172 years before Daenerys. So this tells you that it is a Targaryen theme. And I typically associate it more with the connection that the Targaryens have with dragons. But you can also just think of it as a Targaryen kind of house theme as well, because the house was established as being a big part of the dragon world, right? Until we ended up not having dragons. And I think we might find out how we ended up not having dragons in this story as we go. I'm rambling. Anyway, that theme sounds like this. Very recognizable. You hear it at the beginning there. You also hear it when you first see uh, Rhaenyra flying on Caraxes as well. Sorry, Syrax. I'm going to get my dragon names mixed up here at first because I'm still trying to remember from Fire and Blood. But uh, you have Rhaenyra riding Syrax and that theme there's a variation of that being played as she flies over king's landing and then lands and uh, a beautiful theme love it uh, but as the scene back in the great council then shifts to the vote being announced we also get something that we've heard before and i don't know if you really recognize it first of all the little game of throne motifs start to come in that we know that dun dun da da dun dun, and then it's the theme that uh, is called the King's Arrival was originally called on the season one soundtrack, and I am so tired of people calling this a Baratheon theme. Way back in my podcast Winterfell days, my first season of podcast Winterfell covering season two, I identified this theme as being associated with the Crown, and. That has been proven time and time again, despite the fact that Dave and Dan would sometimes call it a Baratheon theme. I think Ramin even called it a Baratheon theme at one point early on. But then he graduated that theme, as I had heard, to just representing the throne. And it's a great job. It culminated in Game of Thrones and during season eight when John and Danny were arriving in Winterfell. But more importantly, when Sam was telling John about his lineage and the fact that he might be an heir to the throne. And that's when I think even this most stubborn should have stopped calling this a Baratheon theme. It is a theme about the Iron Throne or the position of the king. And that's what's happening here as Viserys is being announced as the new Prince of Dragonstone and thus the heir to the Iron Throne. All of that rambling to say, this is what it sounded like in the episode as Venerys is being announced as the Prince of Dragonstone. So you can hear that Game of Thrones motif in there. It sounds wonderful underneath that theme. I don't know if we ever heard it applied like that. Maybe in season two, actually, when Joffrey was doing his thing and getting rid of all of the competition in King's Landing, there might have been some of those Game of Thrones motives underneath it. But that was a much more minor sound. This time around, it's a major sound. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about 
harmony. And in terms of harmony, even though it's not really major, it still feels lighter. It feels happier. And, and it seems to emphasize more of the major theme or the major kind of feeling. Something that totally was borrowed from the Game of Thrones main melody, actually the bridge of it, is something that uh, that motif was used over the chord progression from the bridge as Rhaenyra and Alicent are going through the Red Keep. And they're practically locked arm in arm. It, it almost feels like they're skipping. And part of that feeling comes from the music that is going from it. It's very light. It's very happy. Uh, it sounds like they're using the chords from the bridge. He's added kind of a new little melody on top of it. And it really feels wonderful and happy. It sounds like this. So there's a couple of things that I really want to talk about here. One is the fact that in almost any kind of piece that has been written in a long period of time, if you have what I call an AABA form, where you have the main section being an A, it's usually repeated, and then you go to a section that's different, and then you repeat the last part again, or the first part again. And what happens is, is typically between the A and the B, the tone colors, the timbres and the the harmonies change in a way that uh, usually works in the opposite direction. For instance, in the Game of Thrones main theme, everything in the A sections is minor. It's very minor. It's, it's kind of mission-oriented. It's kind of dark. But uh, when you get to the bridge, it goes to what we call the relative major, which keeps it in the same key, but allows you to mine out all of the major chords. And major chords, again, typically make us feel a lot lighter than the minor chords do. So that's the harmony that's going on here. The other thing is, is that he's actually using the Game of Thrones motif, and he's done this before, but he's actually using the Game of Thrones motif to follow those chords and give it a sense of wonderful feeling. But more importantly, there's a rhythm that happens here. And the rhythm that is happening is something that I like to call crossing the bar. Most musicians do that. It's where you have something like the Game of Thrones motif, which is actually in a 6-8 time signature. Don't worry, you don't need to know these numbers. But it's being played against the 4-4 time period or time signature that this music is being played in. So the music is being played in this very symmetrical meter and this very symmetrical rhythm that feels very at ease. That, again, it helps to increase your happiness. But then the motif kind of doesn't really complete in every measure of the music. Instead, it does what I call crossing the bar. And it kind of has to complete rhythmically over a couple of measures as opposed to just one measure like the main melody and the harmony does. And that also, in some cases can create tension, but because everything in the harmony is major, instead, it creates a sense of playfulness, literally skipping. The, mu the motif is literally skipping along, and it's kind of going uh, at a different rate, it feels like, uh, than the 
music of the melody and the harmony, even though they are all connected, they are all working in the same time signature. It's just the way that motif is placed in the time that makes it show up on different beats or feel like the emphasis is on different beats. And I love that. I think that that was absolutely fantastic. Now, the final thing that I want to talk about, this is tough. I had a really hard time with this whole sequence because um, it's just kind of traumatic for me to see someone's fear come to them, um, to realize what's about to happen to them as, as they're going to leave this world. And uh, the whole idea of this sequence, and one of the things that made it so powerful is the fact that when that realization actually came to Emma, there was no music. That was very important. A great composer, and sometimes it's issued out by a director or a showrunner saying, no, I don't think we should put music here. But you think about how visceral that first sequence is when Viscera says, we're going to take the baby out now. And then she realizes what that means. And there's no not a note of music anywhere there's just it's it's so visceral and part of the power of that is the fact that you know if we had put music underneath that it had taken away some of the reality of that when you're in a hospital room with someone who is dying there's no music playing unless you're brought in your your phone and you're playing something just to try and help ease the person uh into the next world but it's it's not something that happens although this kind of music that happened a little bit later in the sequence after damon had fallen off the horse and they continued to do the sparring it was uh incredible and a very very simple melody but it's something that'll stick in my head every time i'm in a hospital room with someone i i swear to god this even though it was very simple the melodic shape has a shape that just kind of slowly moves up step by step it's a very slow progression the chord progressions go down uh in kind of the opposite direction and then come back together uh, all of that is very powerful in the way that that happens of course a beautiful beautiful cello sound uh as far as the timbre goes really gives this the humanity that it deserves um not just the editing of cutting back and forth between uh damon and and emma uh that was very effective too but this very simple piece of music that just kind of noodles around it tries to get to a place and then it falls a little bit and then it reaches way high and then slowly falls off and this kind of represents emma's struggle to stay alive uh and not talking about when they're first holding her down and everything i'm just talking about as the blood has already left her and you see the life start to leave her. That's that last moment of, I won't say hope, but it, it's just this last moment of struggle. And uh, the melody goes really high in that point, And then everything falls off. There's also a couple of chords in here that typically don't fit with this minor key. Of course, this is harmonically minor. It makes it very sad. And one of the things that the, the that makes it surprising and, and jolting and, and even more of a compliment to that very visceral beginning of this whole sequence is the fact that there's, there's one chord in there. 
uh, that just doesn't fit the key, but it totally works because it, it moves, the top note kind of moves down chromatically. And anytime we have chromatic movement, it gives us this feeling of inevitability, I suppose you could say. And despite whether that chord is major or minor that it falls to, it still feels very uh, inevitable. And that was one of the things that really gut punched me this particular episode. And I'm just going to play that and let you listen to it. And then we will get back to our panelists and we will start the wheel of topics next. Okay, there was the music review, folks. We're going to do something a little different in the way that we talk about things. I mean, we used to always do long-form discussions with this particular podcast anywhere where somebody would just bring something up. But this time around, we're kind of going to let the seven gods decide. We're going to spin a wheel. Granted, it's a very tiny, tiny wheel. And it's hard to fit all the subjects on there. And goodness knows that I can't see all of the subjects all of the time. So I'm going to have to ask for my panelists' help to read off whatever it were whatever spot on the wheel that this wheel lands on but when it lands on it we have to talk about it so let's give the tiny wheel of topics a spin right now uh holly i can't i i i can't read that can can you tell me what 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 it landed on yeah i can and the gods want us to suffer immediately the name of the topic of the first topic we are discussing is Maester Malpractice. Oh. oh, if it's not a technique that isn't being done by every maester across the country already, why is a king allowing this? I guess presidents get all kinds of experimental treatments done to them all the time at the Naval Hospital that nobody ever knows about. But uh, it's crazy. If I was a king, I'd say, yeah, no, it's the thing is. And Kelly, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but the way, I mean, Viserys is, put, first of all, put in an impossible position. But second of all, he's essentially told that his wife isn't going to make it either way. And I've heard a lot of podcasts already, just recently, uh, you know, since I recorded my initial reaction podcast, completely blasting Viserys for this decision. I can't see that. I mean, it's either lose them both or lose one of them. And you're going to, the, the common denominator is the wife. So I completely understood why he went for that, especially when you take into the fact that at the reveal at the end of the episode, he's thinking about, he has to pass this secret on about the dream to somebody else. And I just, I couldn't believe how much hate Viserys was getting for this. I just feel terrible for the guy. Holly, how about you? What did you think? 
Yeah, on the one hand, I can see why those people are upset because Viserys all was spent the whole episode talking about having a boy, wanting a boy. He was certain it was going to be a boy. And so I guess they can see that's all they cared about, that maybe he was willing to sacrifice his wife for his son. Uh, but yeah, I, but I, I, I really do with you, Matt. It was it, the, there was really no choice. There was the choice to save one being the baby or or save neither of them. There was no way she was going to be able to have that delivery of a breached baby safely pr- without suffering and probably dying and then the baby probably dying in the process. So I don't think the wrong I wouldn't say the wrong choice was made. However, I did think when it happened, I was it made me think back to that conversation that Emma and Viserys had before she went into labor about how she was saying like this was going to be her last time. And that make it easy for Viserys to say, yeah, definitely save the baby. Or did she seal her fate by saying like, I'm done, you know, after this one, I'm done, you know, like she she actually was done um not in the way she meant it so um i thought back to that conversation i thought interesting a little maybe foreshadowing that's a tough decision i mean i i, w- I wouldn't pretend to want to be him in that that spot that's 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 tough i mean and it's you're trying to make the decision for her i mean that's yeah i that's one of those things where i just shrug my shoulders it's like i, I mean that's it's just it's a rough that's a rock between hard place, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I think one of the things that made it so visceral, and I commented about this in my music analysis as well, is that um, when she comes to the realization of what is happening, there's, there's, there's no drama about it. I mean, it feels more real in that moment than some moments that I've spent recently working in a hospital. So I, it just, the, the, the seeing people come to that realization that there's nothing they can do um, is, is a horrifying thing to see as, as somebody in that profession. So um, that scene, not, before, before they actually cut her, as they were starting to hold her down, that was what totally got me. Um, and you can see the pain on his face as well. Kelly, what about you? What did you think about this? As an atheist, I don't have any, uh, re- I can't relate to him in this way, but he had faith. He had so much faith in his, the God's dreams or whatever he he believed in. He had faith in the maester and that I can kind of relate to like this appeal to authority that he believed that the maester was telling him the truth, that this was the only option. And of course the maester's bias is coming in because the maester's part of the patriarchy and he's, you know, of course, you know, values the life of a male heir, obviously over the, the, broodmare that is the queen. So it does feel like Viserys wasn't given good advice and he was relying on faulty information based on his belief in what this uh, dream was leading him towards. So I don't blame him basing his decision off of these things that he believed in with in good faith, you know? So However, it is, you know, I'll blame them for their bias. I'll blame them for their patriarchy. I'll blame them for not giving her a choice in the matter, but you know, any of those other things or for, you know, making her go, go through this, what is this, her sixth or seventh pregnancy at this time? Like these, you know, not being in the whole system of in and of itself, not being happy to have a full, healthy, intelligent, you know, girl error as an option. You know, there's so many things that, you know, you can blame him for leading up to this, that I don't have to take him in that moment and say, you know, 
in, as a human in that moment, like that sucks. So there's no good decision that he could have made between those two options. I think the way they went about it, they could have, I mean, I was sitting there the whole time going, oh, girl, pass out, girl, just pass out. Like it was horrible. Oh my God. And, it's funny that you say that because I was watching it with a friend and uh, my friend said, my friend who has gone through two C-sections, I was like side-eyeing her and making sure she was okay while we were watching that scene. But even she said like, she should have passed out from the pain by now. And then Matt, you just said, some, when you were talking about it, you said something that made me realize what I am mad about Viserys about. I don't like that they didn't tell her what was going on. That was really upsetting. So to see the her have to go through the fear of like, oh, Maester pulls out the knife and then she's like all of a sudden scared. Like, I wish they would have told her whether she would have had a choice in it or not because I have a feeling she wouldn't have had a choice. I still wish she would have known what they were about to do. Maybe she could have, I don't see how, but maybe a few seconds to like mentally prepare or understand what was happening. I think that's the biggest crime uh, of this scene is just her having to go through it all suddenly and be terrified the entire time and die a horrible, painful, frightening death. I would agree with that as well. I, I can see that uh, quite clearly. Uh, and uh, no one is ever prepared. Um, you don't know if you have months or if you have minutes, it, it, uh, the, the last ones are always tough on people. Well, the title of the, the, the that the wheel landed on was Maester Malpractice. And some of the other issues with the Maesters uh, we didn't really establish earlier on in the series was, or in the episode was when, I mean, you saw the Maester trying to deal with Viserys' wounds on his back. And there yeah. was kind of a weird moment with like the, like, how are we supposed to heal this? And they talked about like cauterizing it, I think, and how that's like an option that they're leaning towards. So also the idea that the Maesters are unable to heal these wounds that this guy is getting like is that ind indicative of their lack of experience is he just a really smart guy and that's why he's the, the maester in uh, in king's landing in charge or is he actually skilled in arts of healing or anything and you know maybe the malpractice is far far more reaching than we expect and knowing what's going to happen to Viserys in the future like it doesn't bode well that he's unable to handle these situations so far uh, I guess who picked this maester? I know Otto's obviously making moves, but could some, there be like some sort of machinations from Old Town in terms of we're just not going to heal Viserys sort of thing? Because it, it seems, I don't know, the wound didn't seem all that unique. Yeah, the, the wound seemed like a normal, you know, infected wound. But what was troubling was the maester said it had gotten bigger so it's right. like definitely it's not just not healing it's getting worse um that made me wonder if there was something else involved like poison or like he got it from the throne like i, I don't do, know do we need the reckless speculation uh disclaimer here real quick yeah bumper Possibly. throw the bumper here <laughs> reckless speculation reckless speculation <laughs> isn't that why people listen that why, is. yeah, isn't that what podcasts are for actually that that scene was funny when he talked about cauterizing the wound and he's just like fine he's because because he was playing with the flames i'm like yeah he could he could take that like but he's he can he's fine with them cauterizing the wound that won't hurt him probably much think at about all. It until you said well, yeah, well the matrix like it's gonna hurt and he says fine and i'm thinking it's not gonna that's not gonna hurt him probably that bad at all he's a targaryen who is pretty tolerant of fire from what he lets shown. that wound get any bigger it, it'll start to hurt more because you get yeah, yeah, more flesh definitely 
as everyone has brought up um, with the with the first episode, the birth scene was obviously one of the most difficult uh, scenes to watch in that show. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very traumatic. Um, and I have listened to a few people have um, wanted to suppose that maybe the the maesters are doing something um, nefarious that they are really working against the targaryens in some way or another that uh, perhaps that the the death of the sun wasn't uh, just an accident and i just want to add that i i didn't get that take on it at all it to me it felt like um you know it was this uh early example of, of trying to do a cesarean when they really didn't know what they were doing um, oh, plus so, I, I don't think that there's any kind of technology that they could incorporate uh, uh that could stave off the amount of blood loss that would be part of that it was just something that's beyond their time even though they were trying it and exactly and, yeah and something that's beyond you know i mean they can save the sun even though the sun didn't survive in this case it still feels like, you know, that this is science progressing forward, perhaps more forward than it's capable of rectifying uh, itself with. But it, they definitely made it, the, that maester made it the case to Viserys, to his king, that uh, Emma was going to die either way. But he right. did have a chance to save the child. It's just brutal that she wasn't told what was exactly, going to happen yeah. so that she could prepare. Yeah. Awful. Yeah, um, yeah. That 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 part was awful, and and as I said, I, I heard heard a couple people over the last few days talk about that they thought that the baby dying might have been again that the maesters wanted that to happen. Where I think you know, just again thinking about how these things would happen back in an earlier time with a cesarean like that, the baby it seemed like in the when they had it in the maester's arms that you could hear kind of the baby kind of gurgling. Like maybe had fluid in the lungs, and that would be very common for a cesarean because they haven't gone through the natural birth process and gone through the birth canal that they would right. have fluid in the lungs. So to me, that made the most sense for, well, it would be easy for something like that to be a cause of death. Not only that, Susan, not only, this, not only that, but the, I mean, the look on the maester's face when he hears that sound. Right. Tells me exactly. that there was nothing nefarious intended. You know, he's as surprised as, as we are yeah. uh, when we hears that. I, right. I think anybody that's out there throwing that around is just looking to try and, and support some kind of book theory for the main series without actually, right. you know, uh, without considering what the show is actually showing us. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I felt like the maester looked down at the baby, like, "Oh no, you know what's going on?" Yeah, here he, now? he was he was shocked and he was scared. He's like, "Oh," because he yeah. knows it could mean it this for him. You know, if he wanted that baby dead, you wouldn't have seen that scene. Right, right. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I totally disagree with anybody putting that out there. But that's just me, uh, folks. If you have something that you uh, want to bring up about that feel free to send a tweet to the letter b the number four the dragon pod or you can send emails to matt's audio blog at gmail.com that's m-a-t-t-s audio blog at gmail.com or you can leave comments on the website matt's audioblog.com or you can leave comments on our youtube videos that's by going to youtube just search for the word before the dragon podcast and you should be able to find us fairly easily leave a comment on a video we'll share all of our feedback 
that we get each and every week. Uh, are we ready to spin the wheel again? Yeah. I spy with my laser eyes that it landed on Emma. Well, how convenient since we've just been talking about what happened to her. Uh, Holly, I know you've got some thoughts about this. What do you got? I just really liked this character. I thought the actress was beautiful. I loved her scene. She just seemed like a sweet, wholesome Targaryen mom that I would like to have. Um, and I love, so I love the scene with her and Rhaenyra. I liked her scene with, um, with Viserys before things got awful. Um, and then funny uh, that she said i think it was when she's in the bathtub and she's talking to viserys and she's talking about this pregnancy and like how hard it is and she's talking about how this was the last time and then she makes she makes this like offhand comment like oh man it feels like i could give birth to a dragon which i thought was interesting because um what we know of like Danny and Drogo's baby Rago and how he was born. And there may also have been a precedent of like Targaryen babies being born with like scales and tails and stuff like that. So I, I, I just thought that was interesting thing to include there to kind of maybe connect a little bit to what happened in game of Thrones and, and possibly some other things that we've heard, uh, heard about just, just in the books kind of offhand, but nothing like really actually confirmed, but I thought that was a, a fun little tidbit for, um, for the fans of the lore. Yeah. I, I liked that they had her represent like a woman, like Catelyn in, in a way, like uh, appreciating her role, um, and fulfilling it, like maybe more so than, you know, people in our, you know, time can kind of appreciate or understand, or like, I don't know. She seemed to be at peace with her, her place in, in the society, um, the way Catelyn was, even though, you know, like, you know, from an outside perspective, she's capable of so much more and she should have so much more autonomy and all of this stuff. Like I was grateful that we could see like a strong character like her, um, you know, especially so vulnerable in a time of being so vulnerable, but her still being so strong. Um, uh, it was an interesting, it's a, a new thing for Game of Thrones for, I think, like a pregnant woman to be such like a, you know, <laughs> I don't know, just, she was very regal, even though she was in such a, like a vulnerable position. It was just, uh, um, we, we knew her too shortly, um, but in every scene we saw her, she was pregnant. <laughs> okay. So how did you take her conversation with Rhaenyra about her place as basically just as an air creator. I mean, I didn't love that, but she wasn't wrong. That's what their, that's what their world is. She's a, she's a, a royal, like she's a womb for royalty. I think she said something along those lines and you kind of, you mentioned it earlier, um, how that, like that's their battlefield versus like the battlefield of the men. And you were talking about how that scene was intercut with the tourney and it was just kind of just, um, you know, hitting home what she was talking about, like the battle, the tournament was going on outside while she was fighting her woman battle in the birthing bed. And I thought that was interesting that they put those together like that. And how big the consequences of winning, quote unquote, either yeah. of these battles can be in terms of the course of history. Or yeah. losing. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that um, they did a great job with her in just this one episode in making us care about her mm -hmm. uh, in feeling her connection with the, both her daughter and her husband. Um, 
I think it's interesting that uh, they, they didn't point this out, but for, again, those of us who've, who've read the book material to know that uh, she's half Targaryen and half an Aaron from the Vale, that, that her father was an Aaron and her mother was a Targaryen. And uh, I've heard a couple of people talk about the fact that uh, Game of Thrones uh, opened up with the death of a, an Aaron. And uh, and this show is opening with the death of an Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison as well. And yeah. what is it about these two brothers? I, well, obviously, Damon isn't very uh, interested in his wife from the Vale, uh, but, no. but they're, they're both married to, to women originally from the Vale. Right, right. Yeah. And I I don't know that we ever even specifically got this information in the book that it, it clearly spelled this out but i i tend to think that you know we we knew that uh, good queen allison their grandmother was very much into making matches for her for her children and and other nobles with, you know throughout the realm so i would tend to think that those were probably marriages that she arranged uh for those grandsons again in trying to strengthen those uh relationships and ties with other noble families around yeah. Hmm. Uh, what else about Emma? Anything? Oh, it was heartbreaking. Definitely, definitely heartbreaking. And and yeah, the whole idea of um, the the agency being taken away from her that she had had no yeah. uh, say in what was going on. And as much as I don't like to normally bring any kind of real life politics into this, the fact that even though this show was started and, and thought about a couple of years ago, the fact that it's uh, kind of on target with some things that are going on around those issues of women and childbearing today, I don't think that's lost on anybody. John, I can't, I'm, I'm blind. I can't read that. Can you look at the wheel of topics there and tell me which one it landed on? CGI dragons. CGI dragon. Didn't we just talk about that in your intro? We did, but it was so bad. I he want to talk about it again. Okay. Because so, I do uh, have some positive takes on it too. Let, but, let's uh, do this. The one right next to it seems to be Cor- Corlys Valerian. So let's we combine can talk the about two him. topics. Sure, we can do that. CGI Corlys Valerian. Here we go. It, I'm really interested to see what this character is going to do. But um, again, like I said in my intro, uh, the, the acting, he felt separate from everybody else. And maybe that's just that character that he is kind of an outsider bringing to the inside because of the connections to the Targaryens. But he's also kind of on the outside, sort of. But yeah, it's just it's weird. I don't know. It's like everyone else felt like the, like the Maesters, Emma, like all the kids, everybody felt like in that world, but he felt like he just walked in on, he felt like an actor on a set. He didn't feel like the character. It's weird. I, that's just my vibe. Holly, I see you got some thoughts. I thought. disagree. I, I definitely disagree. And I, I agree with you that he didn't maybe have a lot to do this episode, but I thought I took away some really small things that made me just appreciate him so much more. First of all, I think him and Rainey's together are ultimately going to be fan faves of everybody. I really do. Like, I, I, I think there's something special about those two together. Um, I liked seeing them together. I like the little looks they um, shared with each other during the tourney when, um, when that Baratheon knight um, asked for Rainey's favor. Um, but also all the small council scenes. Um, 
So I'm, I, you know, I'm not really liking Otto Hightower right now. Like he, you just know he's up to some shady stuff um, and I'm not feeling his vibe at all. And I don't think Corliss is either. And I, and, and I was picking that up from, from those small council scenes. I was like, Corliss is not really here for Otto Hightower. He's maybe um, probably going to like be on the opposite side of what he thinks we sh- they should do. And I, I like that he kind of had a some opposing opinions versus the rest of the council just to kind of bring balance to Viserys council. Um, the white dreads look cool AF, honestly. I thought he looked cool as a character and um, I really can't wait more of what he has. So I can understand, I see what you're saying, but like, I, I'm definitely, I wasn't getting anything negative from him. I, I definitely liked him. From, um, so hey. He might be a fine wine. I just have to start tasting it a little bit more until I like it. Maybe. Um, but I really think, I, I think Corliss and Venerius, I even, or, 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 sorry, and Rainies, I wrote in my notes, I think they're going to like be the heart of the show. I love the visual of those two together. Like you can tell those two have chemistry. Yeah, and the, the And the visual, like you can, like that part feels, it's just when he starts speaking, it just felt a little bit off to me. But again, like I said, I'm going to reserve judgment. That's just my initial take. Susan, what do you feel about that topic? Yeah, I, I really liked him. And I, I thought that, uh, you know, the way he came across at the at the uh, first uh, council meeting as mm-hmm. no nonsense and, you know, really wanted to focus on uh, what's going on in the step zones and, you know, refusing to uh, allow Rhaenyra to pour him a drink and, you know, he just seemed like, you know, he was there for all business. And uh, so, yeah, I thought uh, I, I really liked everything I saw about him every time yeah. I saw him on screen. I how, how do you feel about him and, and Rainey's as a couple? Did you like the little scenes that they shared uh, this week in terms of uh, especially in what's coming to mind is the one during the uh, the jousting tournament or at the lists? Uh, when Rhaenyra's or Rainey's makes the comment that, uh, you know, it seems like most of the knights around here have gone soft because they've had peace for too long. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that to I me, you know, it's the whole, whole call back to the, you know, the Knights of Summer uh, idea and the fact that, uh, you know, they had had an opportunity to have these uh, heroic uh, wars that they typically feel like is is what their destiny is or how they want to make their name or their claim and so um they are have all this pent-up aggression that they want to get out um i think it really showed again that you know she's a little more astute about this where perhaps the king and uh his counselors should have been trying to have a little bit more command on the situation of of how that stuff was going on and not let things get so out of hand like they were I just love their conversation during the tourney. It was fun. I think she's super smart. She should be on the small council too. Like you could just tell she's got all this wisdom. She's got all this. I don't know. She's a dragon, man. She's a dragon. The queen that never was. All hail the queen that never was. (laughs) I'll just get out of the way at the beginning because they're going to be my problem. So the rest of the series, um, I don't know if anybody watched Walking Dead, but these this couple reminds me so much of Carol and King Ezekiel. And they are just like amazing characters on that show. Like King Ezekiel was awesome. Carol was awesome. Just both badasses. And in this show, I'm expecting none less, nothing less. And of course, you know, there's 
visual similarities between them as well. But like, I think, yes, like the dreads were so cool. I think just the, the commanding nature that they both have and the independence that Carol had versus uh, what uh, Rainey's has. Like, I just, I can't unsee it now that I've seen them as those Keanu, um, corresponding characters from this other show that I, I enjoyed. So I love seeing anytime that they're winning on screen and just being their, their best selves. I'm, I'm into it. And of course you, you, we had the scene of like the Valerians, like walking down the, um, the Valerians walking down the hallway all together and they're black and gold and seahorses and they're all their blonde dreads and just everything. They look epic. There's nothing not epic about them. And I love that she's, will bring the Targaryens, will keep them kind of like tied in together a lot and tied in through her. And like, she's a great anchor for them because she, I think she's like the best that the Targaryens um, had to offer. And like the way that she's kind of, I think she's chosen to like be off away from court and stuff like that, so, which is, you know, because of what happened to her there um, getting passed over. So um, there's a bit of bitterness there, but I do love like the looks that they exchange with each other and they kind of have um they don't seem to be manipulative or um, deceitful in any way. Like, so I like that, that they are kind of accepting of their roles, but um, not, you know, the biggest fans of the um, structure of society that they are comporting to. Anyway, they do seem like they are the least gray characters in the show so far, just from episode, you know. I love them so much. So in Corliss, I think has been nothing but like, you know, yes, he, they, they are trying to like dismiss him and stuff um, in the, in this in the council chambers, but that's always the character that everyone else is like, hello, like, <laughs> like you know, the, you know, the, the maester is sending down a, a hand and trying to be like, white walkers are a big deal, you know, and everyone else in King's Landing being like, we're talking about war, you know, so <laughs> some vibes going on there that we might be familiar with. <laughs> worrying about (laughs) okay uh i can't see that at all i cannot see that at all uh who who can see it holly can you can you see what it landed on what did it land on dreams mean something to targaryens yeah okay so we know uh from our histories with the books and everything that we wouldn't even have targaryens in westeros if it hadn't been for the fact that there was a targaryen a long time ago that had a dream that said hey get the heck up out of here uh of valeria the doom is going to happen or something terrible is going to happen here get up out and so their family uh went off to dragonstone without uh looking even looking back really and so they've been on dragonstone for a long time and then evidently now we find out that Aegon also had this dream that has a lot of implications not just for this series probably less for this series than for the home series those whole series that started out and in george's main books nonetheless dreams are very important to these targaryens how do we feel about the fact that viserys had this information that this information exists and that uh, he has now entrusted Rhaenyra with it, even though it doesn't look like he was going to originally if he'd had this male heir and this male heir would have lived. Um, does that place any more emphasis on how Rhaenyra is going to feel about this prophecy that she's been told? Mm-mm. I don't know the answer to how Rhaenyra, how this is going to affect her. I feel like she wanted to be the heir anyway. She just knew she couldn't. And now she's the named heir. So I'm not really sure that this is really changing anything much for her, except maybe just how important it is that a Targaryen remains on the throne. My first impression of it when I heard it was like, oh, 
this is just a retcon to connect this series with the Game of Thrones series, which I wasn't really mad about. But I, I was like, oh, okay, like I see what they're doing there. And but then the more I thought about it, like it, it brought up other things not really related to the series at all. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer your question. But um, it, it kind of explained to me a little bit about Aries, maybe where Aries' frame of mind was when he started to go mad um, in, you know, in the events leading up to a Game of Thrones um, and maybe his obsession with wildfire because we didn't have dragons at that time. So maybe he thought wildfire was going to be a solution to get through the long night and, and, and keep some, keep some lights on. I don't know. And then um, they, we don't really, this is more book stuff from fire. Well, just kind of book lore that we don't really have answers to yet. But when they talk about Aegon the fifth and how he died at Summerhall trying to hatch dragons, I think this could behind his whole motivation to like hatch those baby dragons so um after i started thinking about those things i was like oh okay like this does maybe serve a bigger purpose in the whole scope of not like not just song of ice and fire but like everything the whole world um so i kind of like it that did not answer the question though (laughs) sorry you never do uh kelly (laughs) what (laughs) <laughs> what do you think about this you don't have to answer my question either i i do um i think that there will be implications as far as like uh Rhaenyra's, um actions going forward um she may not see um any other heir as having legitimacy and that being the motivating factor i think makes the targaryens less bad guys i think for the story runners i think that they wanted to make the Targaryens have some semblance of sympathy and some have, you know, they do have this like hero complex and instead of, you know, that can become tiresome to an audience, I think. So I think that by making them have this, um, and kind of a spoiler for like, you know, we know that the, the prophecy is true. So they kind of have already got the audience bought in to the legitimacy of the prophecy. So by saying like, oh, we heard that this thing could happen and then we'll be like, but could it though? But then we have, we've seen it. So we know it did, you know? <laughs> so like, we know that their concerns are legitimate. So any action that they take in order to, um, you know, save humanity is a legitimate action, you know? So they kind of can't fail by shoehorning that in um, and we kind of have to buy it. So I think, you know, Rhaenyra's actions will be seen sympathetically because she believes this. Um, anyone else may not, who doesn't know about this um, is kind of, it's not fair to judge them as harshly because they don't know about the you know prophecy, um, which brings up questions like, does Damon know about the prophecy? Um, and then I always wonder like, you know, what would his actions be if he did or didn't, or if he was brought into that fold or wasn't? Um, so uh, I don't know uh, if this will have consequences and I don't know. Um, I think, I think, I think Damon knows and I think that's what fuels his anger. And I think uh, Rhaenyra will um, act more uh, dramatically because of, by knowing if that answers your question. Okay. Yeah. It's, I, I, what was interesting was um, as, as I was watching it and I heard that I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure I've never, ever heard this before. Like, this is all brand new to me. And I, I don't know, I, I guess it's not so far out of the realm of possible that I was like losing my mind over. But at the same time, I didn't think it was like, oh my God, this changes everything. Cause 
to me, I don't think it changes much at all. I think it's like, okay, another one of those prophecies, another one of those dreams. Most of the time, those dreams become kind of like, I don't know, half or quarter truths. They don't like all fully come to be true. I it's mean, what, oh, sorry, go no. for it, Holly, jump in. I was going to say, it explains Rhaegar too, because we what we know about Rhaegar was he was not mm-hmm. interested in fighting at all until he heard the prophecy and then he was. So, I mean, this is essentially just that again, you know, what I find it a little harder to believe is the more I think about it, I think it's a little less plausible that it, it made it all the way down to Aries. Like if it did go that far, um, I feel like that's kind of, I don't know. That's like, the question that I have too, Holly, because I'm, I'm like, um, who knows? One would who think that know. this information would have died with Aegon the fifth at some like point. I'm, well, Aries was a baby. Like it could be written somewhere where it's maybe have like read it, even if they're not going to be heirs, they like found out about it, reading their own histories. I don't know. Um, mm. Yeah. But that's, that was the other thing that, that made me just question it is like, I find it, it's, it's almost plausible that it would not made it have made it all the way down. Just think about telephone though, even between like you that and too. 10 year friends. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, this is hundreds of years. And yeah. And then gonna... the years in between when the next heir is told when that, ruler is now t- telling their heir like how big and small like it's not, I, it has to be written somewhere I, that that's the only thing that makes sense to me for the what is, what is the wheel and the prices right very tiny wheel i can't read that kelly what does it say this one i can read quite clearly it is uh daemon or daemon Ooh. all right well this one's fun i'm gonna i are i've already pledged daemon uh very emphatically in my uh initial reaction you can go back and listen to that in the last episode it came out monday it's the previous episode so i just want to hear from you guys john uh let's start with you dame on or dame off i mean the guy does some pretty terrible things sometimes he does them for the right reasons sometimes he does some pretty cool things and they don't really feel right so what's going on here dame on or dame off I guess right now I'm kind of indifferent. What I absolutely don't like is is the behind the episode stuff. If anybody watched that, they definitely are intentionally trying to color him grayer through that um, than I think the show does, personally. Um, I like the character just because he seems like he speaks his own truth, not necessarily the truth. And he uses that to color his actions. It, it's definitely, um, he's probably the most Jamie Lannister character we have of this group. And that makes him very intriguing. However, I, there's so, there's so many interesting things about this character compared to everyone else. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of the brothel scenes to begin with, but there are some clear, like kind of like implications, like he's got some issues going on. And I was like, okay, what are we trying to say here? I know there's definitely some weird lusting after his niece. There, there, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. And I mean, we're going to see what happens, I'm sure. And since I haven't read that part of the book, it's all new to me. Can oh. I ask, you said that the behind the scenes are painting him grayer. Yeah. Do you mean that you have a positive view of him and they're painting him negative? Or you have a negative view and they're painting him positive? I have a probably I would be on, I guess, the meter. My meter would be going a little bit more to the negative side because I find him to be a bad faith actor for the most part, even though he views himself as a good faith actor, which makes him a great character. 
because <laughs> the way he sees it is he's the good guy but the way we all see him is, is we think he's i would say he's definitively pretty bad okay. his That's actions true. are his actions are negative but yes the way they color him in that behind the scenes kind of like behind the episode they're like oh he's very multifaceted you know he cares for his family and, and stuff and there it's very intentional at least that's how i saw the behind the scenes was holly's got things to say i can see it <laughs> on her face <laughs> my face does not go, go ahead, holly I believed that I could see how much he cares for his family in the episode. Okay. And I believed it. I, I truly believed it. And uh, yeah, I feel like he's right or die Targaryen. He's going to do whatever for his family. And, and yet, yeah, yes, a little creepy. Some, some stuff with him and Rhaenyra was a little weird, but also you could tell how much he cared about her. And then even with his brother, like, um, they get into that fight when they're in the throne room, but then they're like screaming at each other. But when he's telling Viserys that uh, he thinks, when he tells him he's weak, which sounded bad, but he's like, brings up that great point of like, that small council is just gonna like jump all over you. They're gonna take advantage of your weakness. I thought he was being, not only did I think he was right, I, I believe he was being sincere when he was telling him that. And he was really looking out. And I, yeah, he does his own and causes trouble because of whatever trauma issues he has going on but nowhere did he and and we know he's lusting for the throne he wants to be the heir but i'm not getting any sign of him like trying to get rid of Viserys, like otto may have uh implied uh but i really i, I like that um he's bad but he loves his family which is very jamie lannister and then he's also got some Tyrion in him if he spends that much time at the brothel so he's a little bit of both um Damon has these complicated, like, yes, weird things going on emotionally that we think he's working through, i.e. brothel scene. Um, but like, I think he has um, a lot of projection that he's doing too. And uh, that could be like the name of the game with a lot of these male characters that we can kind of look at because you saw Otto being in the, in the council meeting being like, I would worry about him trying to get rid of you, Viserys, you know, he would do naughty things. And that's very likely something that somebody who would do that would say. And then you had the scene in the throne room where um, Viserys is, is banishing um, Damon and Damon says, I see Otto for who he truly is, a C word. And then, but then he says he's a second son who doesn't stand to inherit anything he doesn't seize for himself. And hello, who is Damon talking about when he says that? Like, so these guys are both projecting about each other's position and what they would do in that position, but they're both doing what they are saying the other person is doing. Anyway, that's my theory on oh, Otto man. and Damon. I, I love this, like, Dr. Fraser Crane and Westeros uh, thing you're doing here, Kelly. <laughs> It's not that hard. Boys are very easy to analyze. I'm sorry, but you all just project. <laughs> like explain so much. Susan, do you feel like maybe they perhaps tried a little bit too hard to manufacture a, a state for Damon, you know, by uh, placing a, a scene where he's seemingly very carefully caring about his niece uh, in terms of at the funeral pyre, he's trying to urge her to be able to do what she needs to do. But at the same time, uh, doing these kind of things where, uh, of course, we can look at it from a perspective now and saying, well, back in those times, I, I hate using that as an excuse, you know, just to, to compare uh, just to, because George 
base this story on the War of the Roses doesn't mean that everything in that world has to be like the War of the Roses or have the same kind of mentalities. That's my personal opinion. But what I what I'm trying to get at is the fact that Damon perhaps um in like the inside the episodes, as John's mentioned, they 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 make him sound to be this super nice guy, according to Matt Smith, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh in the show, you see these kind of conflicting sides, but maybe do you feel like they tried to overamp some of the sides of it just a little bit to make him more gray than he actually seems to be or should be? No, I mean, I, I think that they did a good job of showing that he's not just uh, a single-minded villain type of character. Right. Um, even like when he was listening in on the council when they were talking about him, when the king said that, uh, you know, Damon doesn't want to be king, I think that that little smile he had at the moment was his um, self-acknowledgement that, uh, that Viserys is right in that that uh, he wouldn't have the patience for that type of thing. So I think that, um, you know, he, he's not necessarily a, uh, a Machiavellian character who's wanting the throne for him for himself. I mean, he obviously saw himself as the heir apparent at the time that there wasn't uh, another alternative to that in, in his mind. Um, but um, I, I think they're doing a good job. I mean, We've heard for years that he is George Martin's favorite Targaryen and that uh, in the descriptions uh, talk about that, uh, you know, some people thought he was the greatest guy and a, and a hero while others thought he was uh, the worst villain. So I think they're doing a kind of a good job of, of uh, sticking to that. Okay. Well, in that case, let me ask you perhaps the most important question. Uh-huh. Are you Dame on or are you Dame off? Are you going to root for this guy or not? <laughs> but, uh, I'll say for the time being, I'm Damon. All right. For the time being, you're Damon. He's got he's to do a little more to change your mind, is what you're saying. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Sounds good to me. Matt Smith Four. is killing it. He's killing it. I know people were like upset about the casting. He looks great. He looks like a Targaryen with that wig on. I, I, the wigs are fine. For I loved him with the messed up hair. Yes, yes, when he was dirty. Yes, I love that too. He had, he gave me 99% of the laughs through the episode. Um, I love that he was his own little bird spying on the small council. Um, He was just back back there. Um, And then in the, in the tournament scene, when he's jousting with us or Kristen and he gets knocked and he like grinds on the divider thing, like the whole way. That was hilarious to me. I thought that was so great. Go ahead. Does anybody think that Damon's aware of this prophecy at all? Or is he, is he completely in the dark? I think he could be, but whether, I don't know if he knows, knows. Because but. if Damon's in, 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 I mean, Aegon even just having this dream clearly proves that the magic has a plan. Yes, there was a tree, but it doesn't have no plan. It's all random. There's no plan. No plan of the magic, Matthew. Dedicated to George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series (laughs) and the HBO Game of Thrones franchises. (laughs) You're listening to Before the Dragon. Don't tell me what to do. Do, 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 do. That's going to wrap up part one of our coverage of the first episode of House of the Dragon. Don't worry, there's plenty more topics on the tiny wheel 
for us to discuss. You'll get those in part two of the podcast coming up in just a couple of hours after the release of this one. We want to keep you engaged all day long on Thursdays. I do have one final thing to do for this hour, and that is to introduce you to a contest that we're going to have. Now, if you heard our preview podcast, you probably already know that we're going to be doing a contest for our listeners. I didn't really announce a prize, but the prize is going to be an official piece of merchandise from the official HBO store regarding you know, House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones or whatever you want. I'm not even going to say limit it to, you know, a t-shirt or what have you. I'm going to let you pick one item if you are the winner. Now, you might be asking, how do you win? That's a little more complicated. Each week for the first five weeks that we cover House of the Dragon, we're going to be releasing a movie scene just done in an audio format but it will be done with kind of a Westerosi twist. So it'll be a famous movie, just kind of Westerosized. Is that how you say that? And we'll be doing that with like having characters from the world of A Song of Ice and Fire portraying the roles of the characters from that movie scene. With that said, you will need to listen to all five of these audio scenes or check them out on the YouTube. There's nothing visual that aids you with the YouTube, but you pick, you listen to all five. You tell us what actual movie the scene is from. Despite the fact that we've tweaked it up a little bit, it won't be completely recognizable, but it will be dialogue mostly from a scene from a famous movie. You list all five of them, submit them to us by October 10th of this year, 2022. And then we will select the winner, either whoever has the most correct guesses, or if there's a bunch of people that have the most correct guesses, then we'll randomly draw a winner. And then you will win something merchandise-wise that is official to House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones, your choice. And it's on me if you are the winner. Hopefully that explained everything. If you don't think that that explained everything, feel free to tweet at me at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod on Twitter. You can send emails to Matt's audio blog at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on the website. That's Matt's or on the YouTube videos. And you can even enter in any of those ways as well. You can either send your, all your entries in via email or via video comment or via website comment or via the Twitter, whatever you want to do. Just submit them all five to me or as many as you can get by October 10th and you are entered into the contest. Uh, I know it seems kind of complicated, but it's really not going to be that complicated. The, the scenes are going to be pretty easy. And this first scene that you will hear is done by Stephanie, the Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the North, and myself. And we are portraying Cersei and Tyrion in a scene that is from a very famous cult comedy classic. That's your clue. A famous cult comedy classic that this scene is from. It's your first stab at this, so think about it. You have up until October 10th to submit all five. We will be doing these each week for the first five weeks 
of our House of the Dragon coverage. Here's the scene, and we'll see you for part two in just a little bit. Scenes from a Westerosi movie. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the Kingsguard was down. I think the problem may have been that there was a Miranese pyramid on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf, all right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. Really just think you're just making too big of a thing of it. Like the joke I never told the punchline to. Making a big thing of it would have been a good idea. Yeah. 